Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning. Um, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 what we looked at last week as some review. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 4. Solomon says, Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands, consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. So we see if you're following along in your your sermon insert there, we see here, envy makes work a frustrating ministry or mystery. The effort, verse 4, to keep up with the Joneses. And then there's two different responses that we saw last week. One response, verse 5, just don't work at all. But that's the response of the fool. Then there's the response of the wise in verse 6 that we saw. You just need to work hard, have a right balance with things, of, of a right balance of rest and work. And But uh, envying others is a sinful motivation to work. It makes God-given work frustrating instead of satisfying. Pick up then in verse 7. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. Yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Here we see the second thing, selfish greed makes work, God-given work, frustrating. He shows us the necessity of of companionship, of good relationships. Um, It helps you have better profit from your labor, verse 9. It gives you help and difficulty in verse 10. Uh, Verse 11, comfort in time of need. And then verse 12, protection in time of danger. Selfish greed is a summary here. Selfish greed is a sinful motivation to work. It rejects God's reasons for work and his good provisions for that. That brings us then to the third aspect of work that makes uh, life, uh, God-given work, hard to grasp. It's like catching, trying to catch wind. That's verses 13 to 16. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun, They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. A third thing that makes work frustrating, a frustrating mystery number three, is fickle people. F-I-C-K-L-E. Fickle people. One minute, they're thinking and wanting one thing. The next minute, something completely different. We see in verse 13, as I write here, a tale of two rulers. 
First, a poor and wise youth. We also learn a little bit more about him in verse 14. He comes out of prison to be king, although he's born poor in his kingdom. The young man, he is poor. That means he doesn't have many, if any, material possessions. He's worth little to nothing. And if you want to get involved in politics, what do you allegedly need? You need lots of money. But this guy didn't have it. What he did have was wisdom, it says here. He is wise. And the idea of this, in contrast to the old king, is that this young man will receive instruction. People teach him what he should do. He hears it. And he says, you're right. I need to do that. And he responds. In a word, you can say, this man is teachable. He's teachable. He's humble. And he's teachable. We see here, you can be poor materially, but wealthy in wisdom. A couple verses to write down. Proverbs 15, 16. Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. You can have a lot, but if you've got a lot of trouble, boy, oh boy. Better to have a little, be content with it, and know the Lord. Another passage, Proverbs 16, 8. Proverbs 16, 8. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. So here we have first a poor young man. The second ruler, the tale of two rulers, is this king. What do we learn about him? Well, he's old. He's old. Now, is it bad to be old? I better hear a unanimous no. <laughs> it is not bad to be old. But are there things that happen as we get old that make it difficult to fulfill our responsibilities as we get older? There sure are. There sure are. Significant limitations. There's physical limitations. You just can't keep up. There's mental limitations. Um, I have been joking lately the last few years that the reason I have problems remembering is not because I'm getting older. It's because the longer you live, the more you have to remember. It just takes longer to access that information. Does that fly? No, we forget things, don't we? And another thing that can happen as you get older, that can happen. Now, have there been old people who are very physically fit, that are mentally with it? Absolutely. But by and large, what happens? Our bodies decay. Mentally, we forget things. Another thing that can happen when you get old is the ability to just fulfill your commitments. You're just not able to fulfill those commitments. Something we see from this guy He's stuck in his ways. He is stuck in his ways. He is content in a bad way. He's stuck in his ways. He's old. It says here, we'll see in a little bit, uh, he will be admonished no more. This is a situation that, frankly, I have seen in pastors when they stay pastoring and they needed to retire, 
a long time ago. They physically can't do it. They're mentally not there as sharp as they should be. They can't fulfill their commitments, but I'm not getting out of the pulpit. No way, Jose. I'm going to keep preaching until I die. They're going to have to carry me out by my, you know, all these kinds of things. Folks, protect yourselves from that. Don't let me keep going on. I've given strict instructions to my wife. You need to tell me to quit. Now, I've already kind of set a date roughly when I think my body's going to finally give up when I get to have like 40 or 50 years of diabetes. But you need someone who is a faithful man who will be able to do the work. The second thing about this older man, he will be admonished no more, end of verse 13. The idea here, he is foolish. He will not receive instruction. Remember the one word that summarized the young man in this regard? Teachable? This guy is not teachable. Wise leaders take advice. And they welcome it. A couple passages from Proverbs about this. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Proverbs 13, 10. Wisdom is with the well-advised. Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they're established. One, one more, Proverbs 20, 2018, pardon me, 2018. Plans are established by counsel, make war by taking instruction. So this guy, he will not be admonished anymore. He doesn't know how to take advice. He won't heed a warning. That's the strength of this here. He will not heed a warning. I'll give you two Old Testament examples. The first, from 2 Kings 6, verses 8 through 10. We're not going to turn there, but 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. The prophet Elisha warned Israel's king of the military plans of the Syrian army. On several occasions, the Syrian king and army, they made their plans on how they were going to attack Israel. And they went to attack and they were gone or they made preparations. And you remember the Syrian king's response? What is going on? Is somebody revealing secrets? And then they found out, no, Elisha is warning. Same word, warning. Israel's king. And what did Israel's king do? He heeded that warning. He had nothing that he could base that on. He believed this word from God. He heeded it. And that's a positive example. Another example is from Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 21. Ezekiel 3, verse 21 and 33, 4. Ezekiel 3, 21 and chapter 33, verse 4. Here it talks about a watchman on the walls. And he has a responsibility. He has a responsibility to warn the inhabitants of danger coming. It's applied spiritually to Israel. Repent of your sins. If you do not, you will die in them. If you are warned and you heed it, you will live. But if you're warned 
and you don't heed it, you will die. The warning here is stronger than counsel. You know, I think it'd be a good idea to do this. That's not the the strength of what's being talked about here in verse uh, 13, admonished. This man is being warned. And does he respond to it? No. He stupidly, stubbornly goes headlong into this danger. And who's it going to turn out bad for when a ruler of a people does that? Yeah, it might turn out bad for him, but who especially is it going to turn out bad for? The people. This is the second ruler. Number two, we have a new leader who replaces an old one. Uh, Verse 14, the beginning of verse 16. He comes out out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. So here we have this poor youth. He ascends, we get a little bit more information. He ascends from prison to the throne. Now we hear prison and we automatically think bad guy. He killed, he robbed, he murdered, that sort of thing. Well, back then that was possibly the case, but it wasn't the only possibility or reason why he was in prison. He could have been in prison because he owed debts, debtor's prison, and he had to stay there until those were paid. He could have been in prison because of politics, a political prisoner. We're not told why, just simply that he was in prison. We read in verse 15, how everyone followed the new young king. Now look with me at verse 15. I said last week we had uh, in this passage two fun circumstances in the Hebrew, and this is the second one here in verse 15. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. The, The focus here is in the last line there. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. Now, the meaning of the Hebrew text isn't clear to us. Solomon knew exactly what he was writing. The the recipients, they knew what was being talked about. So what's the issue here? So they were with a second youth who stands in his place. That last two words, his place, that can refer to either the old king or the new young guy. Grammatically, it can refer to either. And then the second one, the second uh, challenge here is when it has this word, the the second youth, this can be uh, referred to the poor, wise youth who came out of prison. So you could uh, understand it this way. The second comma, the youth who stands in his place. And some of our English translations put it that way. So you just have two individuals, the poor youth who came out of prison and the old guy. Another way this can also be correctly understood is that it's talking about a third individual, a second, uh, another individual who came after the ex-con, poor, wise youth, a second youth. So you can have the second comma, the youth, referring, are you confused yet? Okay. So what do I lean towards? Both are fine, but I look at the immediate context here and 
I lean towards just referring to the ex-con, the poor wise you. So I don't look at this as two different individuals. But the New King James kind of translates it so that there could potentially be three individuals here. But if you've missed all this, let me give you some good news. It doesn't affect the main point at all. Some of you use different translations. You may have been like, what's going on here? And I want to walk through that just briefly. Here's the point. After the old king, and you got the new king, eventually everyone stopped following the new king. Everyone stopped following the new king. And they started following yet another different ruler. They loved the new king, but the next generation didn't like him at all. In the middle of verse 16, those who came afterward did not rejoice in him. Surprise, people aren't always loyal to past leaders. They're fickle. They want one thing one minute and a different thing the next. They quickly forget and they move on. Why do they change? They're focused on the immediate circumstances. They like certain things that came as a result of that poor, wise youth. But the guy himself, we need to get rid of that. We need to keep these good things and keep going on. I'll give you a summary here, number three, of this new ruler in verses 13 to 16. A summary of this new ruler in verses 13 to 16. First, he came out of poverty. He was poor. He came out of poverty. And the reason I'm doing this is, again, you could kind of have gotten lost there in some of the, the, the fun stuff of the, the Hebrew there. He came out of poverty. Number two, he didn't have influence. He didn't have influence. He came out of prison. Yeah. Folks come out of prison, what did they have? Nothing. In fact, they got negative. Number three, he gained great popularity. He gained great popularity. We see in verse 15, all the living who walk under the sun were with the second, the youth who stands in the king's place. All the living who walk under the sun. The Hebrew here is explicit. Everyone was following this guy. Great popularity. A fourth characteristic. He had wide authority. Wide authority. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Beginning of verse 16. Everyone was under his authority. He had power. But yet, the last point is the point that we're looking at today. His leadership was despised. His leadership was despised. The beginning or the middle of verse 16. Those who came after him will not rejoice in him. So what's the summary of the situation? Last line, verse 16. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for wind. This guy, he gets power. He gets authority. Imagine the work he had to put into that. He had nothing. He was nothing, poor and an, an ex-con. He had nothing, he was nothing. And what heights did he ascend to? The work, the effort, the toil 
that he had to put into this. And it was the next administration, by the next administration, he was forgotten. In fact, he was more than just forgotten. They didn't rejoice in him. That means they despised him. Lasting power, influence, prestige. It's like trying to grasp the wind. Lasting power. It's like trying to grasp the wind. Young, good rulers can become old, unteachable, foolish ones. And people are fickle. This poor, wise ex-con put in so much work, but in the end he's replaced and he's forgotten by a fickle public. And that is a frustrating mystery. How it can so quickly happen. How people go from one leader to the next. Now, where do we see this in our day and age? I'll give you some examples where we see this in our day and age. We see it in public government, as we have here. Public government. Citizens don't see the good rulers that they have. They'll take the benefits, but they'll get a new one as soon as they can get a different one. It happens in public government. A second area that this can happen in is marriages. This can happen in marriages where spouses leave good spouses for stupid reasons, for selfishness, for sin. They had a great spouse, but they left it all for a selfish, foolish, sinful reason. A third area that this can happen is with children. Children can do this. They have wise parents who love, teach, counsel, advise, direct, and instruct. And as soon as the young person grows up and leaves the house, they chuck it all behind them. They don't rejoice in it. They go their own way. And they become their own master. A fourth area, a last one where this happens is in churches and Christian institutions. You know I love church history, and I've become part of church history because, well, that happens as you get older. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this, where you will have, and many of you have been in churches that were started by good people with a good pastor, and then a new generation comes, And the old pastor leaves the scene, and what happens? They love the benefits, but that old guy who was wise and who didn't know what he was doing, they get rid of him. They throw him under the bus. And it's just terribly ironic when in educational institutions, in church organizations, mission, uh, uh, I'm thinking here of associations and fellowships and denominations, Churches themselves and mission boards, how they rejoice in their past, but you know all these problems right now. These problems are because of those old guys who, ironically, are dead and are not around to defend themselves. They don't rejoice in those previous rulers. It is really frustrating really frustrating trying to understand 
why people quickly leave, forget, and replace good rulers. It can make the work of leadership in these areas, government, marriage, family, Christian areas, it can make the work of leadership frustrating, can't it? And mysterious. Here's the point from this passage, that little finger pointy thing there. Fickle people can make work frustrating instead of fulfilling. It can make work frustrating instead of fulfilling. And that's life in a sin-cursed world, isn't it? Solomon talks about. Some applications to make from this. First, with age. For with age. So, it doesn't matter your age. If you're young or you're old, don't be foolish. Heed instruction and warning. Who can be wise? Anyone can be wise. Fear the Lord. And you will have his wisdom. You're young, you can have wisdom. You're middle-aged, you're older, you can have God's wisdom. Fear the Lord. What should happen? What should happen is that the older you get, the wiser you get. That's what should happen, right? But that means, and that involves continuing to be teachable. Once you get to the big six, oh, that doesn't mean, oh, I can stop learning now. I don't have to be teachable. I know everything. Now, I'm looking forward to that. Help me, those of you who are older 60, that's, gonna, that's what's going to happen, right? It's not. It's not. You have to continue to be teachable. Being stubborn instead of teachable is a mark of a fool. And that is proud, being proud instead of humble. Don't be proud. Be humble. Humble yourselves under the hand of the Lord and be teachable. Lord, help us to crucify our flesh. Help us to set aside the eye and instead put in Jesus Christ. What about marriage? Husbands, you are the leader of your home. Don't be foolish by not heeding a warning. And thankfully, the Lord has given you a helper. And frequently, where do those warnings come from? From your helper. Heed the warning. Be teachable and humble. Spouses, remember, marriage is a covenant. It is not a convenience. In a covenant, you are promising, you are committing yourself to the other. Remember the vows? For richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, and on and on. Your commitment doesn't depend on your fickle feelings at the moment. That's convenience. I just don't love him or her anymore. And so I'm going to get a divorce. Marriage is a covenant. It's not convenience, a convenience. 
What about Christians? Christians individually here, I'm thinking. Well, one thing I think about, we can apply this passage to, don't be a church hopper. Not a grasshopper, a church hopper. You know what church hoppers are, I think. Uh, If you're not exactly sure what I'm talking about, praise the Lord. I'm glad you don't know what a church hopper is. You have a right understanding of what's involved with church membership, commitment, struggle, praying, working together. A church hopper, he'll be at one church because he likes what it offers. It gives me what I need. And you know what? After time, eventually, it's not, doesn't, it's not quite as you know, uh, on, 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 on par where it should be. I just heard about this other church. I'm going to go there. Ooh, this is great. And you stay there for a year or two or three. And then what happens again? Same thing, a pattern. They treat their churches as a convenience rather than a covenant. And that's what church is. It is a body of believers who have covenanted together to labor for Christ, to love Christ, and to serve the Lord. Also, Christians, don't be surprised when other churches, when church groups, when ministries, after the founding generations start to fade off into the sunset, as it were, don't be surprised when those institutions and ministries start to go a bit left. Church history shows it always happens. It always happens. When I was in seminary in the 1990s, our president, Dr. Rollin McCune, who's now with the Lord, he was teaching this basic truth and this idea. And to emphasize it, I think he may have seen perhaps that we seminarians had had a long, been a long week. Chapel was on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, He said this one time in chapel. He said, mark my words, one day this seminary will go down the tubes. We were all like, no way, it'll never happen. But he had been around long enough to know it always happens. Because people are sinners, and sinners do what? Sin. That's what they do. Don't be surprised. So should we just quit? Nope. Remember? Had that one covered earlier yesterday or uh, last week. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh, verse 5. Here's the thing. Be faithful now. I can't control, and you can't control what's going to happen in the future. Be faithful now, work hard now, and rejoice in the things that the Lord is doing in and through you now. That's what we must be faithful doing. You cannot guarantee anything that's going to happen after we pass on. Number four, leadership. There is no guarantee their efforts will continue. Well, I guess I could have just included that with the last one right there. huh? No guarantee that your efforts will continue. This is all kind of, wow, downer message again. I don't like ending with that. And so I'm going to end number five with lasting work. Can you do lasting work? Let me give you two passages from the New Testament. The first is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
I bet most of us know this. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? For you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What makes your labor as a Christian lasting and significant is that you're doing it in the Lord and he will reward you for that. Another passage that you might not be familiar with is Hebrews 6.10. Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name and that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. He will not forget your work and your labor of love. Do your work in Christ's name. For Christ, his glory, he sees it, he knows it. And the benefit of that is that has eternal benefits. Way better than why didn't it keep going for the next couple decades? Do you see the importance of your perspective in your work? Do your work in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be a man pleaser. Please the Lord in your work. He sees, he knows, he will reward, and that has eternal, rather than just a decade or two, of benefit.